Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. A very special welcome to um, guests and colleagues from outside the university, especially to Lynn Oh, Thank you for coming the, um, from uh, the Consulate General Papua New Guinea, and of course Frank here and, and the others. And I'm, I believe there are some students here from Papua New Guinea as well. So yes, so we're going to give the floor to uh, Son now, and of course, Son, yes, sorry. So Son is going to talk to us about Papua New Guinea, Australia, 40 years on. So um, they've had independence from us for 40 years now, and uh, a lot of things have been going on there, some very good things which I believe have not been very well reported. I hope uh, Son will be able to talk about those things, as well as other things that are that's going on and uh, what our role, uh, Australia's role, might be uh, now and in the future. So we listen to uh, Son for about 30, 40 minutes, and then we will open the floor for questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. The genesis of this is that earlier this year, the Lowy Institute, after making me a non-resident fellow, commissioned me to write a uh, paper which will come out now in December. I'll start with um, how the, the book actually begins, which is, in early 1974, I was a young journalist not long out of my three-year cadetship at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation when I was asked if I would go to Papua New Guinea to work on secondment with the then newly created National Broadcasting Commission of PNG. I had recently had a bit of a falling out with the ABC Queensland news editor who had written me a letter in which he had said that if I thought further fields were greener, he would do nothing to stand in my way. I jumped at the greener fields offer and it was probably the smartest thing I ever did. The NBC of PNG came into being at PNG self-government at the end of 1973 through a combination of what had been the ABC network in our colony, with radio stations in Port Moresby, Ley and Rabaul, broadcasting in English, and the Australian Administration's provincial radio service, radio stations in the provinces broadcasting in Melanesian, Pidgin, Hirimotu and local languages. Some ABC journalists had remained in PNG working for the NBC, but quite a few had left and the NBC's first news editor, Albert Asbury, was looking for some young ABC journalists to fill the gaps. Amongst the facilities the ABC had handed over to the NBC was Wonga Hostel, where I was allocated a room in the male accommodation wing. I arrived in PNG wide-eyed and determined to be non-judgmental. In my rush to pack, I had forgotten to bring a toothbrush, so I ventured down the road from the hostel and found a trade store where all I could locate was a nail brush with a handle. Well, these partner guineas might have big teeth, I thought. So I bought it, and for a day or two I stretched my lips apart as I brushed until I found a supermarket which, much to my relief, sold regular toothbrushes. It was a great time to be a young journalist in PNG, and I was afforded opportunities there I would never have been given in Queensland. Papua New Guinea was on its way to full independence, and I was put on the parliamentary round. So I covered all of the debates as PNG developed its constitution. When Fiji's Prime Minister, Ratu Sukamasesimara, came to PNG to help Michael Samari convince people of the benefits of independence, I travelled around the country with him and was astounded by PNG's diversity. 
Later, after independence in September 75, I was one of three NBC journalists who provided a weekly wrap-up of the proceedings in Parliament. I did it in English, while Arnie Dougal from Simbu broadcast his in Pidgin and Takuragi from the central province put out his weekly commentary in Hirimotu. <coughs> Those are PNG's three official languages, although the people speak in 860 different tongues. One of my colleagues in the newsroom, John Harangu from the East Sepik province, invited me to join him in playing rugby league for Parga Panthers in the Port Moresby A-grade competition. Through rugby league, I met Papua New Guineans from a wide range of occupations, from teachers to policemen to plumbers, and formed many solid friendships. I also had a bit of success on the field and ended up playing halfback for the national Papua New Guinea rugby league side, the Kummels, in 1975 and 1976, captaining the Kummels in my last outing. 1975 was not only the year of PNG's independence, it was the year I met my future wife, Pauline Nare. Pauline was the first female broadcaster employed to work in the NBC's provincial radio station in her home province of Manus. They flew her down to Port Moresby to do a three-month broadcast training course at NBC headquarters, and she was given a room in the female wing of Wonga Hostel. I found out some years later that Pauline was not as impressed with me on first sight as I was with her. At a family function back in Australia, when I was asked how we first met, I said I was sitting in the foyer of Wonga Hostel and she came down the stairs for lunch, and I was so struck by her looks manas with tattoos, and that I was determined to get to know her. When asked by my brothers and sisters for the memory of her impression, Pauline replied, Oh, I thought that poor white guy is cross-eyed. <laughs> it got even worse when we went home to Pauline's village on Manas after we were married in 1976. Pauline's uncle Wamok, who had listened to the NBC radio commentary on rugby league, was apparently looking forward to meeting the Kummel captain, whom, he assumed, would be an impressive physical specimen. When we hopped off the boat onto the beach at the village, Uncle Wamok said something to Pauline in language. I asked her what he had said, but she didn't tell me. Some years later, when she was cross with me for something, she said, you know what Uncle Wamok said that day on the beach? He said, if you were a fish, we would have thrown you back. <laughs> Pauline and I and our two children returned to P&G in 1979 when the ABC appointed me as the P&G correspondent. Five years later, in 1984, the P&G government deported me after a major row over a Four Corners program on the troubles that P&G was having that year in relation to its land border with Indonesia. I had put Alan Hogan from Four Corners in touch with contacts of mine on the border and that resulted in him getting an interview with one of the military commanders of the Free West Papua movement, the OPM. The PNG government was not happy. In 1987, I had left the ABC, and I was working as a press secretary to the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory when the ABC asked me whether I would go back to Port Moresby again as the ABC correspondent. Once again, I jumped at the chance, and then I spent another 12 years as the ABC's man in Moresby. In 1990, the Prime Minister, Sir Abi Namadieu, who as Foreign Minister had ordered my deportation, awarded me an MBE. 
That's PNG endlessly bewildering. In this paper, I hope to share some of the passion I have for this fascinating country which we as Australians once ruled. I'll just go on and read the first chapter, that was the prologue, and then I'll skip, tell you basically what's in the rest of the paper and then finish off and then we'll move on. So I've called the first chapter, or the first chapter is called Fading Memories. Lawrence Stevens, chairman of Papua New high-profile anti-corruption campaigner, Transparency International PNG, tells the story of boarding a flight to PNG from Cairns. I walked up to the woman with the Geiger counter who was going to check if I was a terrorist with a bomb and brushing me down she said, oh you're catching the flight to Nagoya. He said, no, I'm catching the flight to Papua New Guinea. He told me she looked shocked. Why would you go there? Because it's my home. Really, she said, I could think of nowhere worse. He said, I could think of half a dozen places that would be worse. Have you ever been to PNG? No, she said, and I have no intention of ever going there. Stephen's encounter with that Australian official might be an extreme example of the ignorance and disdain with which Australians seem to view PNG these days, but it is by no means an isolated one. You jump in a cab down in Australia, whether it be Sydney or Brisbane, says Costas Constantino, who is chairman of PNG's largest bank, Bank South Pacific and who owns several hotels, including the Lamana in Port Moresby. And you get an Aussie taxi driver and he says, Where are you going, mate? I'm going to Papua New Guinea. And they say, What? Are you insane? What are you going to that place for? This is not to say that PNG, or more particularly Port Moresby's, reputation for lawlessness and violence is not well deserved. Sir Costas's father, Sir George Constantino, who established an extremely successful construction company, Hibu Constructions, was murdered in the Port Moresby suburb of Gerahu in 2008 when he was carjacked while visiting one of the company's timber mills. When I was the ABC correspondent based in Port Moresby, I was mugged twice. Once, some rascals, the generic name for young criminals in PNG, held a screwdriver to my throat and stole my wallet. While on the second occasion, they put a gun to my temple, punched me to the ground and stole the ABC vehicle. The fact that violence and lawlessness in Port Moresby have come to colour our view of PNG as a whole, I think speaks to a deeper ambivalence about our nearest neighbour and perhaps even embarrassment about our role as a former colonial master. This year is the 40th anniversary of PNG's independence, yet the milestone seems to have barely rated a mention in Australia. How many Australians actually realise that PNG was once an Australian colony? I had a little bit in here which they edited out, in which I said, I play touch football two or three mornings a week, and some of my younger colleagues were extremely surprised to learn that Papua New Guinea was ever an Australian colony. And the editor said, I don't think people who play touch football is an adequate sample. <laughs> So that's not in the final paper. <clears throat> the 2015 Lowy Institute poll revealed that 61% of Australians could not identify Peter O'Neill, PNG's Prime Minister. Lawrence Stevens recounts that when he was at school in Australia during the colonial period, he and his fellow pupils were taught about Papua New Guinea and subjects like geography. Not anymore. 
Nobody seems to know the first bloody thing about Papua New Guinea now, he says. The aim of this paper is to make a modest contribution to changing this situation. Its goal is to help Australians know a little bit more about PNG. To that end, the first two chapters will reflect on both PNG's problems, which are often written and talked about, but also its strengths, which less often Rader mention. The first part of the paper will also talk a little bit about how Australia has contributed to both the country's weaknesses and strengths, first as a colonial power and since independence as PNG's main donor. In doing this, my aim is not just to educate Australians a little bit about PNG, but to try to inspire them to be a little more interested. So the second half of the paper will talk about why we should not continue to ignore PNG, and the paper will conclude with some ideas about how we can strengthen the relationship. <coughs> Indeed, the central argument of this paper is that 40 years after independence, Australia needs to embrace rather than escape its colonial past in PNG. It needs to do so not in any negative or paternalistic sense, and I'm not, certainly not suggesting the best way to deal with PNG's many problems is for Australia to resume some sort of colonial posture. Rather, it needs to embrace its colonial past as a starting point for a deeper engagement with PNG today. I believe Australia's role in PNG, both historical and current, needs to be taught in schools. There needs to be greater media attention paid to PNG, and there needs to be more effort to build people-to-people -people connections with a particular focus on younger generations. Once and for all, Australia needs to shed its embarrassment and embrace its relations with its nearest neighbour. While more than 300,000 Australians a year go to Bali for holiday, holidays, PNG attracts a bare 30,000 visitors. But when people do visit, the impact on them is often profound. As Lawrence Stevens recounts, when you get a member of your family who comes to visit you, or when you run into a bunch of school kids who have walked the Kokoda track or cycled down the Bulaminski Highway in New Ireland, and you hear them talking, or when you hear a bunch of Europeans who've just been backpacking through the Highlands using PMVs, locally owned public motor vehicles, public transport, from Wabag to Ley, and you hear their stories and how positive it all is, it is so annoying for PNG to have such a poor reputation when the few who do come here know how fantastic it is. Now, there's a little bit of geography that I won't go into here, and I'll go into... also talk about the multiplicity of PNG's languages and how... what a motley collection of different cultures and language groups PNG is. Australia never spent a great deal of money on Port Moresby when it was the headquarters of Australia's colonial administration. Connie Dobu, on the shores of the harbour where the seat of that administration was based, consisted of a collection of fairly unimpressive wooden buildings, a few quite ramshackle. When Papua New Guinea was heading to self-government and independence, the PNG government of Michael Samari could hardly get away from Connie Dobu quick enough. Australia then helped it build a new administrative headquarters in the suburb of Waigani in the valley the other side of Burns Peak, where the international airport is now. The contrast between what Australia conduct, constructed in Port Moresby for its administration of PNG and what the British had built in Suva during their colonial governance of Fiji I think is revealing. 
The stone and concrete Suva buildings are majestic examples of colonial architecture. Indeed, Australia seemed determined to pretend that it was not a colonial power. I wouldn't say that any Australians thought we had a colony. Dame Rachel Cleland, the wife of Sir Donald Cleland, the administrator of the territory of Papua New Guinea from 52 to 67, told the ABC's Time Belong Master social history radio series in the early 1980s. That was not in any way the thinking, she said. The first time I heard Colony mentioned was about 1965 and it gave me a distinct shock. Bertie Heath, a pioneer pilot in P&G, told the same program, We're not colonials. The Germans were colonials. The British were colonials. Am I going to be called a bloody colonial in this country? Of course, the truth is that we were colonials, something that does not fit well with the view that we Australians ourselves broke away from a colonial past to be young and free. We're a nation that evolved from a convict settlement. We named Ned Kelly as an iconic figure from our past, and our favourite national song is about someone who stole sheep. So it's probably no surprise that we do not celebrate the fact that we as a nation ruled over another people. The British regularly acknowledge their colonial master history and take pride in having had a British Empire, now the British Commonwealth not us. So it's because of our seeming reluctance to fully address our history in PNG and look rigorously at the consequences that I have coined the term for this paper, the embarrassed colonialist. Then I go into a bit of history about Queensland trying to annex PNG uh, in the 1880s and the British repudiating that, then eventually um, Britain and Germany carving up um, PNG, Papua and German New Guinea. Um, talk a little bit about all of that and uh, how during the First World War it was the first action Australians were really involved in as a military force taking over German New Guinea. When the First World War began, Australia's first military foray was to seize German New Guinea. The first Australians killed in the war in our part of the world died in that action, Captain Brian Pockley and able seaman William Williams. For others, the first action they were involved in was not so tragic. John Fox, one of the volunteers who had signed up only a month or so before, recalled what was probably the first bayonet charge by Australians in the First World War when they took over the German governor's house. We rushed the gate, got in, but the Germans had disappeared. We were met by the Chinese cook, who asked us, with his hands up of course, as we all had fixed bayonets and nothing to use them on, he asked us if we would like some wine and cigars. Then we celebrated in the good old way at the Governor's expense. Then I go on to talk about how Billy Hughes demanded that Australia at the uh, Paris Peace Conference be given control. It was opposed by Britain and the United States, but eventually he won. Um, and how the two administrations were run very, very differently. Um, New Guinea, between the wars, was run... Um, basically by a military administration, whereas Papua was run by the Lieutenant Governor, Sir Hubert Murray, who had been there for quite some time. And although Murray argued he should be given responsibility for both, that didn't happen. And Australia actually could see the possibilities of all those German plantations up there becoming a soldier settlement scheme. And in fact, John Howard and John Howard's father Sorry, John Howard's father and John Howard's grandfather were two 
First World War veterans who were actually offered plantations in PNG but never took them up. I go on to talk about how frugally we ran the two provinces and the fact that in one year, in 1921, our report to the League of Nations Permanent Mandates Commission revealed that in that entire year we spent £12, $24 on native education. Fifteen years later, in 1936, the Commission questioned whether the priority Australia put on native education at 1% of the Territory's budget was high enough. By the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, Australia had spent less on native education in New Guinea in the 1930s than it had in the 20s. I then go on to talk about the Second World War. As many as half a million Australian military personnel served in Papua New Guinea during World War II. My father, Kiernan Skipper Dorney, was one of them. A doctor, he became Australia's most highly decorated medical officer in the war. In November 1943, he was a major in charge of a section of the 2nd 3rd Australian Field Ambulance. His unit was with the 2nd 32nd Infantry Battalion, which had captured a strategically important hill, Pabu, inland from Finchhaven. The Japanese then cut them off, and for five days they were subjected to heavy fire from Japanese artillery, mortars and small arms. The Japanese also attempted to infiltrate their position. 17 Australian soldiers were killed and 57 were wounded. My father was awarded the DSO, the Distinguished Service Order, and his citation reads, Major Dorney, without sleep for five days, tended the wounded of his section, which was continually subjected to mortar fire. Many times he personally helped under fire to bring in the wounded. In a series of interviews I recorded with my father in the 1980s, he told me how his field ambulance team many of whom had seen Africa in action in Africa, Greece and Crete, became a formidable defensive unit in their own right. That came in very handy at Pabu because his men helped repulse the Japanese at night. When I asked him how his normally unarmed field ambulance staff had come by their weapons, he laughed. When we were in Ley, practically the whole of the people I had under my command, except myself and three nursing orderlies, went to the pictures which the Americans were putting on for their troops. He said air raid sirens went off, and about two minutes later, a lot of American soldiers seeking cover ran past his dressing station, which was near the outdoor picture screening theatre. After 20 minutes, my father recalled, all my troops arrived back hardly able to walk, carrying ground sheets, arms, automatics, everything. And from then on, we were the most heavily armed unit in the whole of the 9th Division. Like many Australians engaged in New Guinea in the World War II campaign, my father came to have a high regard for the Papua New Guineans who helped our troops. Papua New Guinea's first Governor, General Sir John Guise, who was a policeman during the war, told me a moving story of how he comforted two young Australian soldiers he was sent out to rescue from rafts between Goodenough Island and Cape Frere. Two very seriously wounded Australian soldiers, very, very young, he said. I'd say they were around 17. They were mortally wounded. You could smell them. Gangrene had set in. Both of them lay on my lap, one here, the other over there, and they asked me, could you brush my hair, please? So I brushed his hair, and they were crying. They were talking about Daddy and Mummy. It was all very sad. And I knew they would not live. As soon as we came through East Cape, they held me. Both of them held me 
They were finished, dead. One could not help but feel that I was like them and they like me, just ordinary human beings. I mean, the friendship was bound, if I may use this term, on the battlefield of blood. The generation of Australians who fought in New Guinea is almost all gone now, and so many other links have frayed. But back in July 1945, the Australian government acknowledged that it owed a debt of gratitude to the PNG people, and it promised a new post-war order. A single administration was created. This was done with the consent of the United Nations, when what had been German New Guinea and then a League of Nations mandated territory became a UN Trust territory, whereas Papua remained officially a territory of Australia. In the first five years after the war, the budget given to the unified administration by the then Labor government totaled £16 million. That's 40 times what had been spent on both territories in the five years leading up to the war. I then go on to talk a little bit about the, the uh, colonial period, Hasluck being uh, the Minister for Territories for quite some time, and Hasluck's own frustration with the Australian Cabinet for not taking Papua New Guinea seriously enough. Um, he said that in Cabinet discussions, um, when it came to the budget, there was um, a reluctance to spend money, and he said it was because of the um, lack of infrastructure we'd already put in and the lack of, of personnel, and he said it was as though we were saying, um, because we've met imperfectly our responsibilities for Papua New Guinea, we therefore don't have to pay enough, uh, contribute as much money as he thought Australia should. Then after um, Hasluck, Charles Barnes took over from the country party, and Charles Barnes never thought Papua New Guinea was going to get independence. In fact, I, go, uh, I interviewed Sir Michael Samari up there and uh, Grand Chief Sir Michael Samari recalls a confrontation with Barnes in 1968, the year Samari was first elected to the pre-independence House of Assembly. In an interview for this paper, Sir Michael says he and others formed what he called a radical group, the Pangu Party. And there's one incident I remember very well, Sir Michael says. We were at Angau House, Australian New Guinea House, it's still standing today. And the then Australian Minister for External Territories, Seb Barnes, used to come up and talk to people, and they decided that my group, which was calling for early self-government, should meet him. And Minister Barnes told us, you people will never get your independence for Papua New Guinea. And I was angry, and in an outburst I told him, you give me the opportunity to educate my fellow Papua New Guineans, and we will make our independence in ten years' time. That was in 1968, Samari said. But we did it in seven years. I shortened and beat my own prediction, and we got it in 75. I then go on to talk a little bit about how it came about, Gough Whitlam being there, and, and then eventually PNG um, getting its independence. Um, they wanted me to talk about Australians, notable Australians who'd been in PNG. So I threw in a line about Errol Flint. <laughs> I, did, I said, there's no doubt that many of the Australian KIAPs, school teachers, health workers, missionaries and others performed some extraordinarily heroic work in often very challenging circumstances. One, though, was perhaps more heroic on the screen than he was in real life. Before becoming a major star in Hollywood in the 1930s, Errol Flynn had spent six years in PNG 
working mostly on the gold fields. He ran up debts, and when one of his film, films, Captain Blood, was screened in PNG, it was greeted with cries of, Where's my money, Flinny? <laughs> George Arnold, who had lent Flynn a few pounds and wrote to him asking for the debt to repaid, received only a signed photograph in reply. Bob Hawke spent several months in PNG in 1966 arguing the case for Papua New Guinean public servants to be paid the same as their Australian counterparts. The Australian administration had cut the pay of PNG employees to 40% of what Australians in similar positions were being paid. Hawke was the lead advocate for the ACTU at the time and amongst his witnesses while running this case was a young broadcaster, Michael Samari. Will Muskins, who was a key app from 58 to 75, told me it's always struck him as a missed opportunity that Australia did not enter into a treaty with Papua New Guinea so that more of those who had spent valuable years in PNG could have stayed on working alongside their Papua New Guinean counterparts. He believes that such an agreement could have kept doctors, teachers, agricultural advisers, technical and trade specialists and key apps in PNG for a few more years. Such an agreement, he said, could have been subject to terms that it could be reviewed every 12 months, with all those salaries paid for by the Australian Government. I envisaged a scheme, he says, that would transfer, transfer all these Australian officers to a special unit in the Department of Foreign Affairs, seconded to PNG, but under the direction and control of the relevant PNG departments. But in our haste to leave, he says, we offered all of these people golden handshakes. While I and a large number of my colleagues opted to leave under the terms of the Employment Security Scheme, he says, which literally encouraged us to take the money and run, I feel certain that if the Australian Government had been seriously committed to retaining our services, then I, for one, would have stayed on. Um, anyway, I then go to talk about... Um, how. Look, I'll just read this next bit because it sort of sums up what's coming. Inevitably, those thousands of Australians who did work in PNG prior to independence are fast thinning out. Fewer and fewer Australians have any real knowledge of this fascinating country to Australia's north to which we gave birth. The lack of understanding affects our dealings. The Australian on the media on the whole these days ignores PNG, and too few of those advising on or deciding on policy seem to show any deep abiding interest. I've been told by one senior figure in Canberra that in the corridors of Parliament House, the lowliest adviser and the backest of backbenchers can give you chapter and verse about the Middle East, but you could probably walk into a Cabinet meeting and talk about PNG and everyone would stare at you and blink. There are exceptions. Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has a fond attachment to Papua New Guinea. My Year 9 teacher at school thought, rather presciently, she told an Australia-PNG Emerging Leaders Dialogue reception at the Lowy Institute, in 2013, that the 14-year-olds in her charge should learn a bit more about Australia's closest neighbours. And so it was that I and the other girls in my class became pen pals in 1970 with a class of 14-year-old boys at Marta's school in Poppendetta. Sadly, my correspondence with young Oscar of Oro <coughs> Province petered out, but recently I spoke of my pen pal and produced a faded photograph that he had sent to me. The PNG Post Courier tried to track him down, but a few too many Oscars came forward claiming to be the lost pen pal, some surprisingly young. 
In the year of PNG's independence, 75, Bishop's sister Patricia did her medical internship in Papua New Guinea working in Garoka. And last year, her niece Isabel also went to Garoka to work as a volunteer teacher at Bukbalong, Pikanini. Her family connection goes even further. Her uncle Ross fought in PNG in the Second World War and her great uncle, Harry Penny, founded the Teachers College in PNG in the 1960s. So Papua New Guinea has captured my imagination, she said, as a place of extraordinary landscapes, rich history and, of course, the most warm-hearted people. A politician from the other side, the Shadow Immigration Minister Richard Miles, also has a link to that very school in Papadetta that produced Julie Bishop's pen pal. In 84, Miles spent three days as a 16-year-old staying at the Martyrs School on a school trip. We climbed Mount Lamington, which was a volcano that erupted in the 1950s, he tells me when I ask him about it. We did that with our contemporaries from Martyrs, which was a great experience. Miles says that as a parliamentary secretary in the Rudd and Gillard governments, he travelled the world securing support for Australia's membership of the UN Security Council. But in Miles' opinion, nowhere else compares with PNG. I reckon, he says, that we have on our doorstep the most exotic country in the world. Life is lived in Papua New Guinea in a way that it is lived nowhere else on the planet. It is genuinely remarkable and I think we Australians are incredibly lucky to have PNG as a neighbour. What an utterly amazing place. But I don't think that sort of amazement and that wonder about PNG is at all understood in Australia. He says he finds the level of ignorance frustrating. We used to be the world experts on Papua New Guinea, and now the level of study and literature in Australia has gone down dramatically. Then I say the rest of the paper argues that we should turn that around. So in the, I'll just run through the other chapters very briefly. The second chapter is, is looking at some of the challenges, what I describe as PNG's imperfect democracy, that up until 2000, I suppose, led to constant changes of, of uh, Prime Minister through votes of no confidence. Um, I talk about the, the way I think development is suffering in PNG because so much money is now going directly to members of parliament. Each member of parliament now gets 15 million kina a year to spend. Now, there are regulations about where that money should go and what should happen, but the Auditor-General's reports have found that um, it's, a lot of it is not being spent um, in, in uh, a way that really, really helps. I have a bit about corruption and... Um, I interviewed, amongst people I interviewed up there was Sam Coyne, who is um, uh, heading Task Force Sweep, this group that um, was set up by Peter O'Neill, but um, once they started charging too many people and tried to charge Peter O'Neill, their funding was withdrawn. Um, I also spoke to Graham Ellis, who's an Australian judge, uh, who is supposed to be the first... Um, head of, of an anti-corruption commission that Peter O'Neill says is going to be established. We talk about law and the, the law and order situation. But then I, in the next chapter I go on to talk about some of the strengths, the fact that, that although it's stuttering at the moment because of, of commodity prices, that PNG's economy is one of the fastest growing economies in the world and has been for quite some time. 
I also spoke to the head of the military there, so I've got a whole section there about the military. I call it a military with no ambition to rule. Resilient women and free media. One of the great things about Papua New Guinea is how free the media has remained and probably is stronger now than it was at independence. In the fourth chapter, I talk about why Australia needs to re-engage, talk about the aid project, the security imperative, how if we look back to the Second World War, Papua New Guinea is, uh, if it hadn't been, actually, Billy Hughes said that if it hadn't been for him getting German New Guinea, the, the whole conduct of the war against the, Ger the Japanese could have been quite different. And the shrinking media presence. When I first went to P&G uh, in 1974, uh, there were two Australian journalists working for the ABC. Uh, there was a journalist working for the Sydney Morning Herald. There was one there working for the Herald and Weekly Times. There was another Australian journalist earning a decent uh, living as a freelance journalist for various Australian publications. By 1982, that number had shrunk and AAP was there as well. By 1982, that has shrunk just to two. Um, and just last year, AAP pulled their correspondent out of Port Moresby. So the only Australian media organisation with any presence in Papua New Guinea at the moment is the ABC. And the final chapter, I just talk about perhaps we could help P&G look at its democratic architecture to see if there's a better system that might suit P&G. This is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, I'm afraid. I... I think that single-member electorates is not a great fit for Melanesia, and I'm, I, I think it's very interesting what Fiji has done, going for one electorate covering the whole country with 50 members. I talk about rethinking the aid relationship, and on the media issue, I think Papua New Guinea doesn't do itself any favours by how difficult it is for journalists to get into Papua New Guinea, as Maggie and I have... <coughs> struck this problem a few times when I've been trying to go up there to write this paper. It takes an age to get a response from the PNG authorities and, and they are very, very wary of um, journalists and uh, I don't think they need to be. I think that the more journalists that get up there, the more that they're going to become fascinated with the place. I do a whole section on culture and sport, especially the sport issue of why is it that in Australia... Our former colony, we've only got about two or three part New Guineans playing in the NRL, whereas all the New, Ze New Zealand colonies and New Zealand sort of things, there are Samoans and Tongans and Cook Islanders all over the place. And it's all to do with the fact that actually New Zealand has a relationship with these countries that allows people to migrate. Australia has no such relationship with PNG, and Australia is terrified the seven million part New Guineans all of a sudden going to descend on Australia. And I, and I make the point that I went through the Torres Strait in the end of 2013 on an Australian patrol, uh, customs patrol boat. We went into various villages and everything. The fact is, it's all those villages in PNG that are making that border secure. They report any suspicious things that are going on and anyone trying to come... I mean. If you're talking about boat people, why haven't we seen any boat people from p and I mean, I, I think we're terrified of loosening the visa requirements. So in the last chapter also I go on to talk about that visa issue and the things that Peter O'Neill has said about it. But I'll stop there and throw it open. Yes.
Thank you very much, Son, uh, for the very interesting and enriching account. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.